All right, so hello everyone and welcome to this, um, I guess it's kind of a bi-weekly um, episode of Under Further Review with Burke and Jen. Um, I'm Burke. I'm Jen. And I'm really excited to be back with you after quite a bit of a layoff. Um, I believe it's episode podcast number eight. eight. Yeah. All right, so we're going to be doing some callbacks to a few of our prior episodes today um, because it seems like... Um, College football, uh, well, college athletes in general just seem to um, be unable to prevent themselves from committing crimes. Yeah. So we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> they are the gift that keep on giving. Um, so, so our first topic for today, um, and this is a callback to a conversation that we had during our last podcast with our colleague Allison about sexual assaults on campuses, is really geared towards what's recently happened at Baylor University and the very big what's happening at Stanford University. And I don't know if we feel it more acutely here because Stanford is not that far away from us. Um, and these are judges that we have the opportunity to practice in front of and, and things like that. But um, for some reason, it feels far more, um, you know, immediate in my like actual world as opposed to like reading about it in a newspaper. But Yes, it does seem like the um, the Stanford case has really kind of blown up on, um, particularly, I think, on social media. I think partially driven by the um, really powerful victim impact statement that the um, survivor of this crime um, gave in court and was subsequently released by the Santa Clara County District Attorney's Office and then showed up on BuzzFeed. Um, I would recommend to everyone to read that statement. Um, I don't think... I, I've, as much as I am interested in this from a kind of a legal perspective and a sort of cultural moment um, perspective, I don't think there's a ton that I can add um, that that very brave young woman hasn't already said, uh, but we will certainly try today. <laughs> um, so I think first we will talk about Baylor, where our favorite special prosecutor, Kenneth Starr of uh, Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton fame, um, had been, I believe, the president of and, the... Yeah, and president and chancellor. And chancellor of the university. Um, and he, along with um, the football coach, Art Bryles, um, were, uh, I guess, asked to... Well, Art Bryles was fired, and um, Ken Starr resigned um, the week before Memorial Day um, from their positions with the university because of a kind of ever-expanding sexual assault scandal at Baylor. So, yes. Yeah, so Ken Starr, he resigned. Um, he was fired as president, but then he... Resigned as chancellor? Resigned as chancellor. So they were going to keep him on <laughs> as chancellor, but uh, Ken Starr still remains on the law school faculty at Baylor. Um, and... Uh, so the investigation that uh, basically came out with this report on what was happening at Baylor and prompted the firing of Art Bryles and, and what's happening with Ken Starr uh, stemmed from a civil case that was, well, maybe it was like not civil, maybe it was a Title IX case um, brought by a woman named Jasmine Hernandez. And basically she alleged that um, she got no help from the university after she was sexually assaulted. And uh, when she went to try to talk to people about what she could do or uh, things that, you know, programs that she could enter into or what sort of like redress she could have, they were basically like, don't hold your breath. You know, this is, you're not going to, you're really not going to get very far if you keep pushing this. And so um, this prompted, the, I think it's the Board of Trustees to hire Pepper Hamilton, which is a law firm uh, based out of Philadelphia, to do an investigation into 
uh, how Baylor was handling its sexual assault uh, allegations and basically whether or not it was in compliance with Title IX. Right. And so it was the Board of Regents. There was a report given to them um, and the regents apparently came to the conclusion that um, the school's failure in handling rape and sexual assault reports falls on um, Ken Starr, although, as Genevieve noted, they were going to keep him on as a chancellor and are continuing to allow him to um, be a member of their law faculty, which um, doesn't really match up with the idea that he is responsible for the systematic uh, denial of rights to people who have been the victims of assault on Baylor's campus. Um, But I think one of the sort of how the football team gets brought into this is um, the case of Samuel the Quachu, which please forgive us if we were pronouncing his last name incorrectly, um, who had played uh, football for his defensive end. He played for Boise State, um, was thrown off the team for um, what later were discovered to be allegations of violence against a woman up in Idaho, uh, transferred to Baylor, where he raped a freshman, um, And basically the whole case was kind of swept under the rug until he was ultimately indicted and eventually convicted of second degree sexual assault by a jury in Texas. Yes. So um, along with Mr. Ukwachu, there's been at least eight former football players that have been accused of violence in the last eight years under coach Bryles and the athletic director, Ian McCaw. And um, it's just, so the investigation into, you know, how Baylor has been handling these things is not, it's not a criminal investigation. It's, it's probably what you would want to term as like a civil investigation, but just really getting to the bottom of like what the process is like, how they handle it there. And they have been found definitely wanting in terms of um, the services that they provide students or people who are victims of sexual assault and how they're dealing with the perpetrators of sexual assault. And in this case, it looks like uh, the athletes at the school basically got kind of a free pass. Right. And in the case of um, Samuel Kwachu, uh, he was suspended from the team, um, I believe, right after he was indicted. But the coaches continued to talk about him as if he was going to come back and play, you know, once his issues, and I'm using air quotes right now that are really great for a podcast. (laughs) Um, Once his issues had been cleared up and that they really thought he was a great kid and they were going to figure this all out. And even um, there is a really wonderful um, story by uh, Texas Monthly about sort of this whole Baylor scandal, particularly focused on Sam Aquachu, but the, it, the story ends with a quote from Art Bryles back when he was still the football coach. Um, when uh, n- news of the charges against Aquachu broke, which was a year after he had been indicted. So they were all aware of this for quite some time. And he responded that he liked the way we've handled it as a university, an athletic department, and a football program. Um, and that's. Uh, f- it's appalling that they would think this was an appropriate way to handle an accusation of a violent um, attack on a, um, a fellow student. I feel like he should have been fired immediately upon those comments since he seems to be unfit to be leading a group of young men, but he wasn't. Um, and it definitely feels like 
the school kind of got shamed into getting rid of these guys that if nobody had raised an issue if this young woman, Jasmine Hernandez, hadn't filed this lawsuit, like they would just keep going on thinking it was okay to turn a blind eye to the suffering of some of their students for the benefit of others. And it's just really it, it's appalling. Yeah, I don't know, is, I'm not sure what else to say, but <laughs> no, because I mean, I was thinking of other words to use and appalling is really the one that keeps springing to mind is that for the, the benefits of big money coming in because of your football and your basketball programs or your other athletic programs that you would just throw victims of sexual assault like under a bus and not give a crap as to what happens to them and think that you're handling it okay. It's one of the um, things, uh, one of the articles that I read, which I thought was really interesting is that um, for schools like Baylor and um, and Notre Dame, and I'm not lumping them in together because of the way that they handle matters, but because they are private institutions that are like founded on religious principles, mm-hmm. and oftentimes schools like Notre Dame, like Baylor, like Brigham Young, have you know conduct codes which really doesn't prohibit, but really frowns upon and you upon like fraternization between the sexes, you know, before marriage, etc. And it really puts victims of sexual assaults in very precarious positions because right off the bat, before you go to the police department, before you file charges, you have essentially violated your school's conduct code. You could get kicked out of school for that. And that really does a number on whether or not you report these crimes, um, whether or not you feel comfortable getting help for these crimes. It's... Um, to, to me, that's just a slightly different twist on, you know, our discussions from the University of Tennessee or other more public institutions where these conduct codes don't exist. Right. And I think that kind of feeds into this whole, the kind of the due process aspect of um, the way co- uh, sexual assaults are handled on college campuses, because a lot of the sort of pushback you're seeing to the changes that are being made to um, sexual assault policies and how they're kind of prosecuted on within the school is that you're really eroding the due process rights of the accused solely for the benefit of the accuser. And I think that when you get into um, circumstances where, you know, technically the victim may have violated some mm-hmm. code of conduct, then the argument becomes, well, we have to punish you too because you know you violated the code of conduct. So it does. It definitely puts a, um, I think, a uh, damper on people's willingness to go and try and get what little help might be offered to them. Um, so there should be some kind of exception that if mm-hmm. you know you should avoid um, intercourse before marriage unless it's forced upon you, <laughs> and then we won't hold you responsible for that. Um, but certainly I don't think the um, codes of conduct have necessarily kept up with the reality of the um, society we're living in today. So, yeah, I mean, it is, it is a fairly, and it's not necessarily applicable to the entire student body, but for a segment of the, of 18 year olds who leave home for the first time and go to college, it is a, a Pollyanna issue. Although, you know, having known people who went to Notre Dame, there are a number of them who take those vows very seriously. And, um, so again, not applicable to everybody, but for it to have a chilling effect on reporting assaults is, is, is very upsetting. And, um, you know, and they really, again, should think about ways to ensure that victims of sexual assault don't feel like they're also being punished for something that's 
outside of their control. Right. And I think another issue that came up in the Baylor case that we also discussed in the context of, I believe it was the University of Tennessee, but frankly, there are so many of these that I've kind of lost count at this point. Um, the Waco, so Baylor is located in Waco, Texas, and um, the Waco Police Department, at least based on sort of anecdotal um, evidence, was complicit in really not helping these uh, victims of assault and kind of getting uh, ju the justice that they deserved. You know, they wouldn't report, um, they didn't investigate crimes to the extent they probably should have. They were not helpful in trying to get, in this case, it happens to be women, to be clear, we've mentioned this on the podcast before, women are not the only victims of sexual assault. It just, um, for better or worse, turns out that in a lot of these cases, the victims are women. Um, but they're not helping these women get any kind of assistance. They're not pushing back to, um, you know, kind of fight the university when the university doesn't want to turn over evidence or release the, um, you know, the, the perpetrators or the alleged perpetrators kind of hide behind the wall of the university and the universities let them do that. Um, and it's just, you know, uh, the idea that these schools are putting a value on kind of whose life and whose future matters more, mm -hmm. um, I think is really disturbing um and should i mean frankly i'm well past my college years but it sends a chill through me that you know having if i'd gone to one of these schools you know if something bad happened to me nobody would care because it's a football player or a basketball player or some promising young man's life who um uh, we don't want to we don't want to damage them any more than they already have been so well and the idea that you know sam Uquachu's um, sacks will mean that like the Baylor football program does better, which means it goes to a bowl and that's, you know, tens of millions of dollars to go back into the athletics. And it's, I mean, it's it, to put a, to put a dollar sign on, on someone's future and well being And by someone, I mean, victims is again, appalling. Right. And what I think is um, sort of particularly disturbing aspect of this Samuel Aquachu story is that he was released from Boise State because of an incident of violence against a woman. Um, it appears we've read reports that um, there's some kind of written email trail or something that indicates that the Baylor, excuse me, the um, Boise State coaching staff or someone at Boise State had provided information to Baylor to let them know that this is why this kid got thrown off. I shouldn't say kid. He was a young man. Why this guy got thrown off the team. Um, and Baylor took him on anyway, because he is, uh, appears to be a very talented football player. Um, so they were willing to put their student body at risk to bring this guy onto the team. And, you know, I think to Genevieve's point, they placed a dollar value on the safety of the rest of their students in order to get this guy on the team because they thought he could help them get to a bowl game, which of course means millions and millions of dollars to the school. And I'm quite certain that that's how Art Bryles and Ken Starr's performance are measured in some twisted respects. Way, yeah. yeah. Um, and we're not saying that um, if you have, committed these crime a crime and you know like this is america and this is the land of like for, forgive being forgiven and second chances and i know i've heard more than one talking head on espn talk about like how we are a land of second chances but to take him on without having sent him to counseling without actually like investigating what had happened and to um 
provide some sort of treatment or some rules or regulations in place to ensure that another incident wasn't going to happen as, um, you know, just yet another one of the failures of Baylor and other programs that, that tend to turn a blind eye to the past practices or instances of, you know, assault by athletes so that they can just get them on the team so they can start playing again and, um, and move programs forward that way. Right. And, you know, I'm sure not to put words in the mouth of the Boise state football coach, but I'm sure there was part of him because it seems to be kind of a common theme that we're hearing now with, um, assailants is the idea that, well, I didn't want to ruin their life. So maybe he kept his mouth shut. Maybe he didn't push as hard as you should have because, you know, boys will be boys and they make mistakes and maybe he could turn himself around and you didn't want to trash this guy's entire future. But at the same time, I think there was, doesn't seem like there was anyone holding him responsible for his actions at Boise State. So why he would think that he could mm-hmm. go to Baylor and not act like this and not get away with it. Um, there seems to be some disconnect there that he had a whole group of grown men who turned a blind eye to this guy's actions. And, you know, they're not the ones who got hurt. It was a 18 year old college freshman who did. Um, so there was also very recently, um, a full page ad taken out in the Austin Mm -hmm. Statesman by eight individuals, um, basically thanking Ken Starr for his service to Baylor university and, um, no mention, of course, of why he was fired as president and why he resigned as chancellor. And of course, I, I wouldn't expect there to be a mention because why, if you're supporting Ken Starr, why would you um, basically put that in your full page ad saying thank you? But the fact that he is staying on as a professor at the law school is galling to me. If you, I mean, when you are sworn in as an attorney, you are sworn to uphold the constitution. And yes, you know, like Title IX is not a part of our Constitution, but you're also sworn to uphold the laws of these United States. And for him to ignore, to to willfully ignore it, maybe in some instances, or just blindly ignore uh, what was going on at the university under his charges is not what you would want from, one, a practicing attorney, and two, a, a person who is going to be teaching future lawyers. Yeah, I mean, it may sound a little cheesy, particularly to those of you who aren't attorneys, but there is, I think, a greater responsibility on lawyers to abide by the law. You know, Mm -hmm. you believe in the system, you're working within the system, and to ignore it for your own personal benefit is just galling to me. Um, I would note there is now a website called thankkenstar.com that is run by the same people (laughs) who posted this uh, uh, ad in the newspaper and the underneath the little website, it says paid for by prominent alumni and friends of Baylor university. <laughs> so clearly this is a gang of assholes who don't care about anything but themselves and their football team. And, um, I guess luckily they've outed themselves in a newspaper to what horrible human beings they are <laughs> in my judgment. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's, And it is, like, as you said, it is slightly cheesy, but you do, you are sworn in, you raise your right hand and you, you promise to, to uphold the laws of these United States. And, um, and the fact that he let this go under, under his regime is, is just to me, like, 
beyond the pale. It's it, yeah, it's shameful, and hopefully there are folks in um, uh, Texas who may bring him, try to bring him up on ethics charges or something, because letting him letting this stand just seems very um, wrong. Um, which sort of leads us into our second story um, about what's been going on um, at Stanford University and Superior Court Judge Aaron Persky. Um, but I will let Burke give you the background on the Stanford University issue. Certainly. So back in January of 2015, um, a Stanford student by the name of Brock Allen Taylor, who was a... Taylor Tanner. Turner, 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 sorry. Thank you for correcting me. <laughs> um, Brock Allen Turner um, was, he was a swimmer at Stanford, was pegged to um, go to the Olympics. I don't know if it was going to be in 2016 or 2020, but very talented young man, freshman at Stanford. Um, there was a party on campus, um, which a graduate student, although I believe she's not a graduate student at Stanford, um, attended. Uh, the details of that night are somewhat hazy, but uh, by the end of the evening, two Swedish grad students on bicycles who were riding through campus noticed a um, man hovering above and uh, taking a lot of really, being a lot of actions over the body of an inert person. So they um, decided, took it upon themselves to investigate what was going on, um, only to find uh, Brock Turner um, assaulting a completely unconscious um, young woman when they yelled out, you know, kind of, hey, what are you doing there? Brock Turner ran. Um, they caught up with him, tackled him, called the police, and um, thus started an uh, investigation into the rape of this young woman by Brock Turner. Um, so that, the assault took place in January of 2015, um, about, a, I guess, a week and a half ago, um, Brock Turner was convicted of three felony counts, including, I believe the most serious of which is assault with the intent to, um, rape. He, well, uh, I thought maybe the most serious one would be the use of the foreign object. I guess. I don't know that we, yeah, I'm sure they're, they're yeah, all really exactly. bad. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yes, he was convicted of three felonies all related to the sexual assault of this, um, unconscious young, woman, unconscious woman, um, who was found with, uh, pine needles and other debris inside of her. Um, it's just, yeah, it's horrible. Um, and the reason that all of this is somewhat, uh, the, the details, which you can also read in, um, the victim impact statement that this woman uh, provided in court and was released by the district attorney's office and is making its way around the internet, um, is because, uh, Brock Turner seems to be insisting that he really thought that she was consenting to all of this happening to her. And if he had known that she wasn't conscious and couldn't understand what was going on, he certainly would have stopped and gotten help for her. Um, but anyway, that that's getting, we'll get to that piece of the story momentarily. Um, but Brock Turner was convicted by a jury of his peers of three felony counts. Um, the maximum amount of time he could have been sentenced to jail was 14 years. And um, after, as part of the sentencing, lead up to the sentencing, a probation officer investigates, and I use investigate loosely because I, I don't know that it's a full-fledged real investigation, but interviews people involved with the case, including um, Mr. Turner and the victim of the crime, and makes a sentencing recommendation. Uh, the district attorney's office had recommended that Brock Turner be sentenced to six years in state prison, 
the um, probation officer basically recommended he be sentenced to probation with uh, little to no jail time. And the judge in the case, Judge Persky, um, accepted the probation officer's recommendation, sentencing Brock Turner to um, six months in county jail. Which is very different than prison. Yes. Uh, Of which he will probably serve three months um, because of assuming he maintains, you know, good behavior. I shouldn't say maintains because he has not engaged in good behavior up to this point, but he shows good behavior while in jail. Um, There's a serious overcrowding issue in California prison, so that's part of the reason he may um, serve much less time. Um, And then he will be on probation for quite some time after he's released. Oh, only three years. So three years, and he will have to register as a sex offender for the rest of his life. Um, But only six months of time incarcerated, and this has outraged people. Um, Understandably, for a variety of of, um, various and sundry reasons, not the least of which is it's part of his justification for um, the decision to only um, kind of have pretty minimal jail time, um, Judge Persky said he was concerned about the severe impact that any further prison time would have on Brock Turner and that he had led a good life up until he raped somebody. Um, so, you know, we didn't want to punish him too severely, uh, which I may be, that may be an overly cynical reading of Judge Persky's statement, but that's, um, seemed to indicate that, you know, this was a good kid who got drunk and made a bad decision. And so we shouldn't have him throw his life away. Um, as a result of one bad choice. So the probation's report that recommended um, the sentence that Judge Persky essentially followed cited essentially uh, Turner's intoxication, the fact that it was his first offense, and his general youthfulness as to why uh, the, the sentence should not be you know, what the district attorney had recommended, which is six years or the maximum sentence, but some other sentence. And... Uh, cited essentially the general objectives in sentencing, which is that you are using the sentence as a deterrent and to force the individual to lead a law-abiding life here out. Um, And he felt that he, I'm not sure who wrote the probation's report. So the probation's report felt that having to register as a sex offender for life um, and also taking into account the victim's wishes, which we'll get to in a second. um, And and the fact that there would be opportunity for someone in Turner's position to turn his shit around and, (laughs) um, you know, and, and lead a law abiding life was, was why it was recommended that the sentence be, you know, the six months in the probation as opposed to a prison sentence. Um, the victim has come out subsequently and said that the probation report got her, her wishes incorrect or like maybe they were misconstrued or there was miscommunication, but she certainly, um, I think she said that she didn't want him to rot away in jail, but not that she didn't want him to go to jail period. So, um, there was definitely a a disconnect between what she had said and what eventually, how it was interpreted and how it came out. Right. And I think I have not seen in all the statements I've, I've read in the news stories about this, um, uh, incident, 
Um, I haven't seen any quotes from Judge Persky on this, but I have seen people asserting that he also said that, you know, one of the reasons for providing such a lenient sentence was because Brock Turner showed remorse for what he had done. But I don't think that he has. No, it's kind of one of those, like the Princess Bride, I don't think that word means what you think it means. Um, because having now read the publicly, it's, these statements have been released publicly in particular, Brock Turner's own statement, um, but also the statement of his father. Who is just a monster. I gotta say, you know, having seen who raised this kid, I kind of understand, uh, not understand is probably being too charitable, but it's no wonder that he doesn't understand what he did was wrong since he was raised by a person who can't explain why what his son did was wrong. Um, so Brock Turner's whole statement is just about what a bad idea drinking is and a culture of promiscuity led him down this path that caused him to really inflict all this harm on this young woman. And he's so sorry about that, but that it's really all about he never wants to drink again. And I think he also said he wished he hadn't been such a great swimmer and so smart and gotten into Stanford because then nobody would be paying attention to this issue, which just makes me want to punch him in the face, <laughs> which is a crime, so don't do it. But... <laughs> um, but, you know, clearly, I think this should go without saying, but it obviously does not. Drinking too much, in and of itself, not a crime. You can get blackout drunk if you want to, as long as you can get behind the wheel of a car. It's a bad idea, to be very clear. Don't do this, children who might be listening. But, you know, if you just drink too much, that alone is not a crime. It's a, probably a bad choice in most cases, but nothing illegal. And just because you drink too much at a party doesn't mean that you've now um, waived your right to not have crimes committed against you, which seems to be a common misconception with people out in the world today. Um, and this, you know, the this, the victim in this case admitted, she's like, yeah, I drank too much and it was a bad decision. It was a mistake, but that doesn't mean that I signed up for what happened to me. Um, and, you know, that seems to be missing from both Brock Turner's uh, apology um, I More use. air quotes. Yes. Um, and also Judge Persky's sentence where he basically is allowing the fact that, or recognizing that the fact that Brock Turner was, was aced um, to excuse his behavior in um, some form. And, you know, another important point about the law, intoxication, unless you have, someone has drugged you and then you go and take some action that is completely outside of your control. Intoxication is not an excuse for engaging in criminal behavior. Um, so the fact that he got a lesser sentence because he was drunk just strikes me as very, um, just wrong. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. You know, it's, uh, there are a lot of kids who, and I say kids because they're in college, not because they're children in the eyes of the law, but there are a lot of people who get drunk on college campuses and every don't weekend. rape people. They're not rapists. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what seems to be, I thought, missing from the sentencing, the, both the probation um, report and the sentencing commentary, I guess, from the judge that, you know, people do this, they get drunk a lot and they aren't all going out and dragging young women behind dumpsters and raping them. Um, apparently Brock Turner also found took great offense at the assault by the Swedish grad students who um, chased him down when he ran away from a woman who he insisted had consented to all of this um, happening to her. But uh, anyway, he fled the two guys who were questioning what the hell was going on. Um, one of whom was apparently so distraught by what he saw when he went to see if this young woman was okay um, that he was 
crying couldn't even give a statement to the police until sometime afterwards. So there are some heroes in the story, but... We like Swedes. <laughs> yes. Uh, but we aren't here today to talk about the good people. We're here to talk about lawbreakers, so... Um, so part of the fallout from the lenient sentence that uh, Turner received was is that there now is a petition to essentially recall Judge Persky or have him impeached or... Brought up on ethics charges or something. Yeah, exactly. So basically getting him off the bench. And there's a petition that's been signed by well over a million people to that effect. And there have been numerous people um, in the community, in the legal community in Santa Clara County, which is where he is a judge, who have come out in support of Judge Persky um, including public defenders who have said that he has a reputation for being very fair and very thoughtful, especially to those individuals who come from, um, you know, not the greatest socioeconomic backgrounds in terms of the criminal um, cases that he presides over. And even the district attorney who has said, look, the whole the whole call to try to get him impeached or brought up on ethics charges or to recall him is setting a very dangerous legal precedent because even though we all think that the sentence is terrible because of how lenient it is, he was well within the guidelines for what he could do. He was following, I mean, he wasn't breaking the law by sentencing him to such a lenient punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you start taking apart judges trying to get them off benches for doing things that you essentially disagree with. I mean, it's, they have the discretion and the ability to sentence people according to guidelines. They don't have to, as long as they're within the guidelines, they're not breaking the law or they're not doing something that is um, antithetical to their position. Mm -hmm. Um, And I pulled up the petition. I wanted to see what it said. And I was really struck because the petition that's on, I think, change.org. I believe that's right. Yeah. yeah, said that essentially Judge Persky allowed the lenient sentence suggested by the probation department. Turner has shown no remorse and plans to attempt to overturn his conviction. Judge Persky failed to see that the fact that Brock Turner is a white male star athlete at a prestigious university does not entitle him to leniency. Um, and the problem that I have with this statement is that it essentially is starting down the slippery slope of saying judges can't put aside their biases, their backgrounds to render justice in an impartial way, which is what we ask them to do. Because I think an important point that we haven't mentioned, and it's only mostly important in the context of this petition, is that Judge Persky is a Stanford alum. I believe he played lacrosse when he was at Stanford. So um, although it's not specifically articulated here, I think there is there have been assertions that you know, he was biased because he saw himself in this young um, man, young man uh, former athletes, went to Stanford and felt sorry for him. And that's part of the reason that he rendered the verdict that he did, or the, excuse me, the sentence that he did. Um, and the recall petition is being headed up by Michelle, is Michelle, Michelle Dauber, who um, is a Stanford law professor. Uh, she is also, you know, full disclosure, she is also a friend of the victim. Um, and I think some of her statements that I read in newspaper articles is indicate, has really done the callback to the fact that Persky was an athlete at Stanford. But you, I, um, listened to an interview that she did on, um, NPR, I think it was morning edition. 
weekend edition Saturday. So from this morning, we're recording this on uh, June 11th. So if you want to go back and look at or listen to her comments, um, and I think she articulated herself a little bit better on this issue in in the NPR interview, where she basically explained that um, the way that Judge Persky ex- you know, explained why he provided this lenient sentence, he um, found that Brock Turner was intoxicated, so that mitigated somewhat what he had done. Prior to committing these crimes, he was a very successful young man who had a great academic record and a lot of athletic accomplishment. Her point is that that could cover any one going to Stanford. You have a lot of people who probably are drinking too much on the weekend or during the week, whenever, um, who have great academic accomplishments, otherwise they wouldn't be at Stanford, who might be wonderful athletes. And what you're telling other Stanford students is that all of these people get a free pass. They get, you know, kind of the proverbial one dog bite where if you, you know, if you have a dog and it doesn't bite anybody and then it does all of a sudden, that's sort of your one free pass. If it does it again, then the dog will be put down. Um, Same concept, except now you're talking about human beings who could be sexually assaulted, that they get sort of one shot, one bite at the apple, and we'll sort of let them off pretty easily. And if they do it again, well, the second time, then it matters more. Um, I can, I mean, I'm, I'm really struggling with this, um, this case because I, I could spend an entire podcast talking (laughs) about the issues I have with the prison system in this country, but I won't bore all of you with that. Um, and I tend to think people do deserve second chances and we should show mercy. Um, you know, that's what judges are here to do to assess, uh, sort of what the, uh, best option is. And if they think somebody deserves a, I mean, maybe they shouldn't be the only person deciding if they deserve a second chance, but that is kind of the job of a judge. And I don't know that we want to discourage that. I think the concern is that, um, in this particular case, he is showing mercy to someone who was caught in the act of raping a, you know, a fellow human being. Um, and by the judge's own statements, it's because he's concerned about the impact that it will have on the criminal's future without apparently acknowledging the horrendous impact that Brock Turner's actions had on the, um, young woman that he victimized. Um, and I've seen, there was a uh, story in the New York Daily News talking about um, a another college football player at Vanderbilt, Corey Beatty, who um, similarly was convicted of raping an unconscious woman. He was sentenced 15 to 25 years in jail. Um, now he is, that case was in Tennessee. He played football at Vanderbilt. Um, so there may be very different standards there. I don't know. Um, one thing that a lot of commentators will point out is that Corey Beatty is African American, American, yeah, not a rich white kid um, who's a swimmer. Uh, I don't. Do we actually know that he's a rich white kid? I suppose we don't know. I did see uh, on a news report yesterday filming outside of his home, which appears to be in a very nice suburb of Dayton, Ohio. Um, but we, you're right. We don't necessarily know the uh, background of his socioeconomic. Yeah, I'm, and I'm not status. saying that like whether or not he's yeah. rich makes a difference, but I think we are assigning attributes to him that we don't necessarily are 100 percent sure of. Um, it, again, doesn't excuse his behavior, but the fact that, you know, we're assuming that part of why he was not sentenced to a more harsh sentence is because he is rich. Affluent, yeah. yeah. As opposed to just being white or drunk or whatever reasons that the judge said. That is a very, it's a very fair, um, 
statement. Um, so I think with the with the kind of comparing the Brock Turner case to the Corey Beatty case, you know, that most of the people who've been writing about this certainly were not saying Corey Beatty should have been only given six months mm-hmm. uh, prison time, but they are making the point that you know, clearly Brock Turner got some benefits of the doubt in spite of the fact that he was seen literally in the act of raping somebody. Um, whereas for an African-American similarly situated um, criminal, he didn't get those same benefits of the doubt. And now he's going to spend, uh, you know, more than half his life by that point in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, just seems there's something wrong with how, um, you know, kind of punishments were doled out in our legal system, um, which I do think is an interesting issue that deserves a lot more investigation by people who can actually make changes to these things. Um, so one of the, um, one of the things that has come up because we live in the Bay area is that there are a number of jurors who are refusing to serve on juries in which, uh, judge Persky is presiding over. Um, they have just stood up in court and was like, there is no way I am serving on a jury in your courtroom yeah, based on what you did. I think one of them said, I cannot believe what you did. I can't be here. <laughs> And he is, I think he told, he started saying to people, if you, if you don't believe you can serve in a court in front of me, you can go home. Is he excusing them or just sending them to another courtroom? I, you know, the... Because I don't know that you can easily get out of jury service. I guess that's true. And frankly, the news reports that I've seen were not that precise. So, um, which is not surprising because a lot of them are not terribly precise on legal issues. So, um... So, yeah, he has at least released them from his courtroom. Whether mm-hmm. he has the power to release them entirely from this round of jury service, I don't know. Yeah, and um, so he was reelected for another term on Tuesday, June 7th. When he ran unopposed. He ran unopposed. Um, so, but that's the thing. I mean, Superior Court judges are elected in California. If you don't like them, don't reelect them as opposed to the recall petition. And I understand why people are angry and I am in no way defending the sentence that was handed down, but I really do feel that this recall petition, what Donald Trump has said about judge Curiel in his Trump university case, that is, that is just, that is insulting to judges and the legal profession. I agree. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I will say when this whole story first broke, my immediate reaction was like, this guy's got to get off the bench, but then calming down and taking a minute to think it through. Um, you know, I think Jen, you're right. This does set a really dangerous precedent. Um, I don't know that we want to discourage judges from using their judgment to, um, you know, make decisions about the people who appear in front of them. Um, and it is, you know, this is a cliche I'm going to botch, but it's one of those things where it's hard to, you know, your values aren't your values unless you're willing to stand by them when they're challenged. Mm-hmm. And I do think that in this case, um, Brock Turner should have gone to jail for far longer than six months, whether he deserved to go to jail for 14 years. I don't even think the victim of the crime thought that that was a reasonable resolution to this um, case, but to, you know, punish Judge Persky for exercising discretion, even though we might vehemently disagree with it, mm-hmm. um, is probably not the best, uh, thing for our legal system. Yeah. Um, hopefully he will learn from this. Yeah. Um, I mean, of course, in what's come out in recent days, aside from, you know, jurors refusing to serve on juries before him, but, um, you know, there are, there have been a number of cases, uh, or a number of articles uh, about cases on which he has presided over, most notably a 2007 case, which it was a civil case, 
um, that had to do with um, the gang rape of a 17-year-old by De Anza College baseball players. Um, and this is different. It was a civil case, not a criminal case. And um, the 17-year-old said that she was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of what had happened to her. And he had allowed the defense to display photos of the victim in compromising positions with alcohol. Like I think there were like a number of shot glasses stuck in her cleavage. So I think there's like one or two photographs that he allowed to be seen by the jury. Um, and there's this very long, long and very winding road about the civil case. Cause it was before another judge for three years before it ended before Judge Persky, like four of the defendants settled, like three had charges dismissed and the other two went to trial, but the jury held that they weren't liable. So, I mean, it's a very complicated situation, but things like this that came up, what? Nine years Nine ago. Nine years ago, thank you. Um, you know, people are trying to establish a pattern for Judge Persky and I, some, and I don't know. I don't know if two things in the span of 10 years of the pattern or if there's other instances or what, but um, I, I think there is a lot of people who are rushing to judgment um, about the Superior Court judge who sounds like he's been held in high esteem by both prosecutors and public defenders. So that's very rare that you have someone that both sides can say is like a thoughtful human being or is a fair jurist. And so um, just, I don't know, just take a deep breath, everybody. Right. And, you know, there may be, um, with respect to this Deanza College case, there are often um, rules of evidence that will protect the identity of um, sexual assault and rape victims mm -hmm that will prevent the defense from um, bringing in evidence of their prior uh, their background or prior sexual behavior mm -hmm. um, in order to prevent kind of a assertion that, well, you know, this the victim person, was asking for it exactly. or whatever. Yes. Um, I don't know that those rules necessarily apply with the same um, strength in civil cases as they would in criminal cases. Also, if she, for all we know, she might have raised her, like, well, I never drink as an issue, and showing evidence that she did might have been important to their case. So without that context, yes. I think it's hard to judge yeah, so that is decision there. So that is very important to note because she, the, the victim, uh, the plaintiff in this case, claimed that she was suffering from PTSD, and the pictures were to show her post-events partying and having a good time, which is... I mean, every time that you raise issues that are related to your health and the impacts on your health, the other side is going to ask for your whole health history to show that what you're saying is not true or what have you. But, you know, oftentimes that evidence will come in to refute, to rebut your case, essentially, that you are in fact not having these health issues related because of whatever allegations they are. So I'm not saying that whether or not these pictures came in was correct or incorrect or, you know, per court rules. Um, and certainly there's a pretty good article in the guardian about it. Um, and, um, and one of the plaintiffs, other attorneys, a woman I actually went to law school with, she said at the time that it was, um, that she couldn't believe that these photos came in. And she just felt that that was basically the death knell in their, the nail in the coffin for their case. Um, again, this was in 2007. We weren't there. We didn't see it. I have no idea aside from what I've read, what the circumstances were for why these pictures came in and how. Um, and, 
So um, just to kind of wrap this up, um, first, as a, a little bit of a, a callback to mentioning Brock Turner's father, um, he submitted a statement as part of the sentencing report that, you know, why should his son be, basically his son shouldn't be punished for 20 minutes of action in the span of a 20-year life, um, which just seems to me to be symptomatic of why Brock Turner probably thought it was okay to um, take this woman out behind a dumpster and assault her in the first place. Um, please, you can Google Dan Turner, I believe is his name, and find his statement online. I don't want to give him that much more airtime. But um, sort of to wrap up, uh, Brock Turner has appealed his conviction, and um, we'll see where that goes. But one question, which I suppose I could look into, but Jen, I wasn't sure if you had any knowledge of this. If he appeals his conviction, does that also reopen the door to sentence uh, him for a longer time? Actually, I don't know. It seems like that might be a violation of double jeopardy in some ways, but mm-hmm. it also feels like, you know, you open the door to this, buddy, so um, I guess that's really not how our justice system is supposed to work, so probably <laughs> there's not a way to extend his sentence, um, but just an interesting... No, unless he does something stupid in jail, which I'm not going to put past him. Right. I mean, there's hooch in jail. He might make some bad decisions while he's in there under the influence and, uh, you know, drinking. He becomes like the freaking Hulk where he <laughs> has no control over himself anymore. So, uh. um, so the last, um, so the last story we wanted to cover in greater depth is the U.S. women's national team who was told earlier this week that they are not allowed to strike in before the Rio Olympics, uh, which they had indicated that they might do. They didn't actually come out and say they would do, but they this was um, one arrow in their quiver in their um, equal pay and um, discrimination suit against the U.S. Soccer Federation. Um, this is actually an, an issue that is well within the wheelhouse of Burke and Jen because it is. this is just a plain old labor law issue. Uh, what had happened was the collective bargaining agreement between the players and the U.S. Soccer Federation expired in 2012, and the Players Association General Counsel, who was their representative in bargaining at the time, uh, and the U.S. Soccer Federation counterpart essentially negotiated a memorandum of understanding that was signed in March of 2013 that, according to the U.S. Soccer Federation, would extend the terms of the Collective Bargaining Association agreement, excuse me, um, with some modifications, and the modifications were found in that memorandum of understanding, but it would extend the terms of the collective bargaining agreement through the end of 2016, this year, well past the Rio Olympics. Um, In December of 2015, the new executive director of the Players Association said that the the extension was invalid, and it doesn't expressly incorporate all the terms of the collective bargaining agreement. So that means that the players are able to strike. And this week, uh, Judge Johnson yes. rules by using plain old contract interpretation rules and in law um, and essentially provisions of the National Labor Relations Act found that the agreement was a valid agreement and that it the terms are well in a, in effect until the end of 2016, meaning that the women who may or may not have been thinking about striking aren't allowed to strike until the term is actually expired. 
And this is something that is very, I think, typical in my and Jen's practice, this idea that, you know, you have one pretty substantial MOU can be, you know, a lot of the ones that I deal with are anywhere from, you know, 50, 60, in some cases, they're over 100 pages long. Mm -hmm. And most, most of the time, you know, the expiration date comes up, everybody's fine with 90% of the contract. They just want to modify a couple of terms. Mostly money. <laughs> right. Um, and in the public sector in California in particular, because any economic benefit changes need to be approved by the governing body. So, you know, the city council, the county board of supervisors, you will typically kind of restate the entire agreement with the modifications that you have reached um, so that the governing body has the opportunity to review the whole agreement. What is more typical, I think, in the private sector is to do something like was done with the women's national team, which is to you, know, you keep your giant document mm -hmm. and then you sign a shorter agreement that says, you know, these are the things that we're going to change. Normally, and this is certainly best practice, is to include a paragraph that says anything not modified by this side letter will remain you in know, effect. Or, yeah. yeah, will remain in effect and unchanged until otherwise agreed by the parties. Um, it's not clear to me whether such language was in this side letter or not. Which, it was not in the side letter. Okay. So that kind of part of the, um, as I understand it, part of the women's team's defense or their argument for why. Um, they shouldn't be held to the terms of the agreement that they apparently unanimously voted to accept is that it wasn't explained to them that um, all of the terms from the old agreement were going to carry through except as they were modified by the um, extension agreement. And with that information not being included, a paragraph that says that this is going to continue mm -hmm. on um, not being included in the extension agreement, um, while ignorance of the law isn't really an excuse, I can see where sort of a lay person might not, it might not occur to them that, oh, wait, this giant like 70 page document that we agreed to mm -hmm. stays in force, except as we've agreed to change it. Uh, so, yeah, it's understandable that to a lay person that might not be apparent. The things that I have problems with is that the fact that the parties continue to operate as if the you know, the full terms were in effect except for these modifications so that uh, there continued to be, you know, they, the Players Association clamored for arbitration, um, which is not a term that was found in the extension, but was a term under the, um, the full collective bargaining agreement. Um, they operated under the same terms as, you know, they sort of went along except for those modifications. Uh, the Players Association also argued that the negotiator for the Players Association didn't have the authority to negotiate on their behalf. And um, and we sort of see this, we don't see that exact issue in our job, but we certainly see the change in leadership for unions and for employee mm -hmm. organizations. And they might not have liked the deal that was struck by their predecessor and they try to undo it. Most of the time they try to undo it when, like, you know, we're actually bargaining a new agreement and not sort of undo a contract that is currently in, a, in an effect. Um, but it's, it's unfortunate for the U.S. Women's National Team but this this ruling on the strike has no impact on their other lawsuit about equal pay and equal treatment. So um, this is this is clearly just in the realm of like labor law nerdiness and um, you know just the stuff that we are that we work with 
day in and day out and are kind of interested in most of the time. Right. And I think the biggest takeaway from this is just that they've lost a significant piece of leverage Mm -hmm. um, in their fight with the um, U.S. Soccer Federation to get better pay for the work that they do um, because... You know, the U.S. women's national team is a um, real national treasure and mm-hmm. are, um, I think they're expected to win the gold. Yeah. Um, and if all of their best players just refuse to show up, I mean, that would be devastating for um, the soccer federation and, you know, for our country as a whole and make everybody look real bad. So um, kind of having that to hold over the head of um the soccer federation probably would have uh, helped them get a better deal. And now that's been taken away from them. Um, I'm wondering, and I'm not encouraging this, um, but I know a that wildcat strike. <laughs> <laughs> well, sort of like a stick out essentially, yeah. because a lot of uh, athletes are mm-hmm. not going to Rio because of the Zika virus issues. Right. And these are, you know, and the prime targets or the prime victims of Zika virus um, are women in like their childbearing age because of the impact of the cat on unborn children and, you know, and themselves. So there are a number of athletes who aren't going to Brazil. I think even Um, Pau Gasol, who is obviously not a person who could get pregnant, but he's not, he's thinking of not going. Um, The Today Show host Savannah Guthrie, who is pregnant, will not be going. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a, um, a British Olympian, whose name I can't remember, but he actually made a sperm bank deposit and is having his sperm frozen. So, you know, in the event that he wants to have kids and he is in, somehow in Brazil and gets infected by Zika, that he will still be able to father children who aren't suffering from um, encephalopathy. The, yeah, micro encephalopathy. I can't pronounce the word. Sorry. Um, so, I mean, it is a, it is a genuine concern, but, um, and again, not encouraging a sick out, but that is something that I know that athletes are very concerned about, uh, generally speaking. Um, but I, you know, given the, given the amount of evidence in the complaint for the equal pay and equal treatment, uh, lawsuit, I just can't, I just can't see in a court of law how you, like, that would just be thrown out the window. No, because, I, you know, I think one of the basic ideas of um, contract law in this country is that generally you look to the four corners of the contract to figure out what the relationship is between the parties and where, you know, there's information that's lacking. And this is something that um, Judge Johnson Coleman um, oh, brought up right, in her opinion is that, you know, sometimes you'll have a contract that clearly doesn't incorporate the full agreement of the parties and that's when you look outside to either prior contracts such as in this case the um, broader MOU that had been entered into by the parties back in 2005 or importantly here the conduct of the parties um, where you know the U.S. women's national team was acting as if the terms of the old agreement were still in effect particularly in asserting their rights to arbitration so now to turn around and say oh well no we didn't think that that contract Mm -hmm. was still in effect um, I mean, it looks like complete bullshit, frankly. <laughs> well, and I mean, it, it certainly was very damning to their case to have their negotiator say, I advised them that the other terms would be left undisturbed except for these modifications. They voted unanimously to accept the modifications except for one, which they had a problem with when they went back and fixed it. They, you know, they adopted that one as well. And he, and there was, um, at least from the testimony 
notice on both sides that it was understood that the terms of the collective bargaining agreement from 2005 unless modified would remain in effect until the end of 2016. So if you have both, if you have negotiators on both sides saying that the judge is not going to find that um, just because the piece of paper isn't completely filled in is, is going to overturn um, the testimony, especially if you're coming from the opposite sides. Right. right. It's typically referred to as a meeting of the minds <laughs> um, and clearly they had that there. So um, coming uh, undoing that based on the assertions of um, the members of the U.S. national team, it really felt like they were grasping at straws here. I hate to say it because I, I do think they are probably underpaid as compared mm -hmm. to their male counterparts. So um, it's unfortunate that they've lost this leverage. But um, they do live to fight another day in front of the EEOC, which is their mm -hmm. wage complaint. And um, as more information comes out about that, we'll certainly keep you guys updated. Yeah. Um, so that's all I really had on the... Uh, U.S. Women's National Team. Yeah, I think that's about all we can say at this point, but we'll certainly um, circle back if any new developments uh, come along. Um, so I know this is an issue that's near and dear to your heart, so I'm just going to let you go. <laughs> all right, so Harambe the gorilla. Um, I'm going to try to limit my comments on this so as not to take up a ton of time because I'm not sure really... Um, the extent of the legal issues in this uh, matter, but um, many people might be aware that um, Harambe was a 17-year-old silverback gorilla who lived at the Cincinnati Zoo. And um, a few weeks ago, a little boy somehow escaped from his mother's supervision and was able to crawl into the gorilla enclosure where he encountered Harambe. Um, the folks at the zoo made the judgment that um, Harambe was a danger to this um, little boy and uh, shot and killed Harambe, who um, silverback gorillas are an endangered species. Um, there are certain um, gorilla experts who assert that really Harambe was trying to take care of the child. He wasn't a threat to him. And there are other experts who have said the opposite. Right. Um I'm not here to judge Harambe's actions, nor am I really here to judge the actions or lack of actions of the um, mother in this case. And I, the reason I'm, I'm focusing on the mom is because you can hear her. I don't know that there was another adult who was supposed to be supervising this kid um, at the zoo. You can hear her in video um, shouting to the little boy, like, Mommy's here. Don't be scared. Um, but uh, whoever was supposed to be supervising this child, I'm not trying to mom shame, but I really feel very strongly that somebody needs to be held responsible for the death of this gorilla. Um, as much as I, listen, I have friends who have small children, um, they're hard to manage. You know, they don't really, they don't seem to have a sense of their own safety or what can be a danger to them. It's a cognitive development <laughs> thing, I'm sure. So, yeah, not to judge little kids, but yeah, like, it's a super hard job to supervise small children, and I believe this mom might have had multiple small children she was keeping an eye on. Um, so, you know, it's, I don't think it's that she should be necessarily charged Maybe this makes me a bad person. I don't think she'd be charged with like child endangerment, but I feel like sh there should be some way to um, hold her responsible for the death of this gorilla. Now, here's my rationale for this. As a society, we have set like a floor for our basic treatment of animals. You can't, you know, animals aren't people, but you can't engage in dog fighting. Um, you can't, if I, I have a dog who I love very much, if I didn't love him and decided to like drop kick him down the street, that's a crime. Um, so while 
we recognize that, um, you know, the, they aren't people. We also recognize that there's something more than just your typical type of property. Um, I do not think there's a basis to charge this woman with murder, which is what some people are asserting. But, um, you know, it does seem as though there's been, there were a lot of people who were very angry, throw the lady in jail, charge her with homicide, which you can't because homicide implies there's a person who died, which... I don't believe gorillas are people, which could be As much as we like them. They, yeah, and this particular gorilla seemed really awesome, <laughs> uh, you know, but not a person. Then there was an overcorrection for people just saying, well, you know what? It's hard to be a mom, and kids get away from you, and mistakes happen. And that seemed to be the mother in this case's explanation that, well, accidents happen. And when I was talking to you about it yesterday, yes. it really seemed like part of the the thing that was like driving you the most insane about this was the fact that she seemed a bit flippant about it. Yes. And it did seem like very much, well, eh, accidents happened. Accidents happen a lot. And that doesn't excuse liability for it. You know, if I'm driving my car and I look down at the radio and run somebody over, mm -hmm. that was an accident. I didn't do it on purpose. I could still be held liable for that. The entire idea behind involuntary manslaughter is that you took an action that led to someone dying. You didn't mean to kill them. Doesn't matter. The law still holds you responsible for this. Um, and I do as much sympathy as I do feel for this woman, um, for her to just say, well, it was just an accident and accidents happen. This particular accident had not happened in the 38 years that the uh, gorilla enclosure had been in existence at the Cincinnati Zoo. Um, and I just, to kind of just ignore this as, well, or blow it off, I guess, is, well, kids are hard to manage and we shouldn't make this mom feel bad about, you know, taking her eyes off her son for a second and he ended up in the gorilla enclosure. It just doesn't seem like... Uh, appropriate response to me because this was an endangered species mm -hmm. and you know i guess another point is this wasn't like the gorilla escaped and grabbed her kid the gorilla didn't do anything wrong mm -hmm. um you know when the tiger bit off roy's face in a <laughs> in las vegas right i mean there i suppose well he was in the middle of an act but it's not like you know the elephants who get loose from their um exhibits and then stomp all over people when you have to do something to stop that. Or even in our own case at the San Francisco Zoo where we had the tiger Tatiana Tatiana who uh, mauled some people who had been taunting her and you know stuck themselves into her enclosure as opposed to this little boy who fell into the enclosure. Um, yeah. We're really familiar with these sorts of issues. Yes. Yeah. So, um, I, I, to be clear, I don't think this woman should be charged with murder, but I do feel like there should be some kind of legal recourse um, to hold her responsible for, um, you know, the accident or mistake that she made, but that led to the death of this really majestic um, animal, because it doesn't seem like he did anything particularly wrong, and to just you know, kind of uh, look at it as just, well, an accident, whatever. Um, feels really disrespectful to the poor gorilla. So rest in peace, Harambe. <laughs> <laughs> and it, and and again, I mean, I don't. I think it is the idea that um, that it, it was. I don't know that it necessarily was a flippant remark, but it did come across as 
that obviously my son is way more important than this gorilla. And yeah, I get it. The four-year-old is a person. And, and as you said, there is, there is a hierarchy, whether we want to have the hierarchy or not about like animals and people and and things like that. But um, yeah, a 17 year old, like really beautiful silverback gorilla lost its life for probably just acting in the way that it would normally have acted had it not been for the fact that this was a four year old boy who was unconscious in his, in his enclosure. Um, and I guess outside the scope of this podcast is whether animals should even be kept in zoos. And um, yeah, I'm also, to be clear, not saying that the people at the zoo should have stood by while Harambe like ate the four-year-old <laughs> child in front of his family. Um, but yeah, they're just, uh, I think there's some happy or medium. Um, I guess one question would be, I'm not even sure what laws this woman would be charged under. I think when the police department was investigating it, they were focused on the child mm-hmm. endangerment aspect, yeah. um, which, you know, people have been saying horrendous things about this poor woman um, and her family online um, that, you know, the gorilla did a better job of taking care of her kid than she did. Uh, Not deserved either. No, completely inappropriate and unfair. Um, you know, accidents do happen, but that doesn't mean that you get to just walk away absolving yourself of responsibility. So, um, so yeah, hopefully uh, we will learn something from this and little kids won't be allowed to escape into enclosures of wild animals going forward. Uh, so that was Burke's Corner. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so we're going to wrap up our podcast today with our three-minute warning. Um, and so unlike the people that we've talked about in great length today about not accepting responsibilities for their actions, we have the story of Rache Caldwell, who is a former Patriots player and is now in prison on drug charges. But um, since he is a Patriots player, Burke, I will... <laughs> You oh, Roche, Roche. So, um, Roche Caldwell, probably, at least in the sports world, most famous um, for playing uh, in the two, for the 2006 Patriots, um, dropping a series of Has passes. Has it been that long? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> um, dropped a number of passes that, uh, in our, I shouldn't blame this on him, but um, dropped a bunch of passes in the Patriots' loss to the Indianapolis Colts in the 2006 AFC Championship. Um, he then kind of bounced around the league a bit and uh, ended up moving home to Tampa, where he embarked on a very unsuccessful career as a criminal. Um, Caldwell, he first got in trouble, um, as being involved in a gambling ring that apparently was kind of headquartered next door to an elementary school. (laughs) Um, so they, these men caught the attention of police, unclear if the first concern was why are these grown ass men hanging out by an elementary school thinking they were doing something much more nefarious than just being involved in the gambling (laughs) ring. And that's how they eventually got caught. But, um, which, you know, frankly, as Rache Caldwell is quoted in the uh, Yahoo Sports story, as someone telling him, the police don't care about this stuff. You'll never get caught. And the next thing I know, I'm headed to prison, saying goodbye to my kids and wondering, what happened to me? Uh, um, they basically started taking bets from undercover cops, and one thing led to another, and um, he ended up in jail. For that charge, he was released um, from jail on the gambling charges, and then decided it would be a really great idea to try and buy um, MDMA ecstasy online um, <laughs> using his – God, the story is fantastic. So he ordered these drugs, um, had it shipped to his own address, 
used his own computer to track the package online. He used his, he signed for it with his own yes, name. Yes, he signed for it with his own name, and then a SWAT team showed up <laughs> almost immediately, to which, and I am quoting Rache Caldwell on this, he thought, oh man, not again! <laughs> which, dear God, okay. So he was then sentenced to 27-month um, sentence in prison, for uh, the drug charges, and um, his attorney commented that this actually caused some relief in his client, um, since he was a really horrible criminal, which Caldwell's mother commented on, good lord, that boy was a bad criminal, and thank Jesus for that. So, um, that just, when your own mom can't even stand up for you, it's, you're in a rough spot. Um, yeah, but the fact that Rache Caldwell came out and said that it has nothing to do with my upbringing, where I went to school, um, it was, I hung out with the wrong people, yeah. and I take responsibility for doing some really stupid shit. Yeah, this um, is about losing my way, being around bad people, and making bad choices, and that's all on me. Direct quote from Mr. Caldwell. Um, I think this guy, if he can, you know, make it through his prison sentence and, um, get back, get back out on the street. I, I, I'm choosing to believe he can turn his life around. I do not have that same belief in Brock Turner, but, um, you know, that's maybe or his, Art Bryles or right. Star. A lot of the people we talked about in the first hour of our podcast could learn a lesson from Rache Caldwell. And I do wish him all the best in spite of us, um, giggling about his, <laughs> awful, awful career as a criminal. I don't feel so bad about giggling about it because he has come out and said that he is a terrible criminal. That's true. And I love that his mom is really happy that he's such a crappy criminal (laughs) and um, will hopefully, yeah, come out to live a uh, brighter life than he had uh, after he left the Patriots. Yeah, maybe some speaking engagements about how not to do your life after being a pro athlete and not setting up gambling rings next to elementary schools. I mean, I think Chris Heron, um, who was a basketball player for Fresno State and Boston College, um, noted drug addict, but he has really turned his life around to become a motivational speaker. Oh. So Rache Caldwell, give him a call when you get out. <laughs> um, and so another one of our three-minute warning topics is... Um, the issue related to what happened to Eva Canero, who was the first team doctor for Chelsea in the English Premier League. I know that we don't really talk about soccer, or at least English Premier League, like European football on this podcast that much, but this was a really big deal because what had happened was in August of 2015, um, Chelsea was defending champions of the EPL. They were playing Swansea at Stamford Bridge, the home of Chelsea. Um, And there was a collision between the Swansea captain, Ashley Williams, and the Chelsea forward, Eden Hazard, uh, who's a Belgian player, which is why his name is Eden Hazard and not Eden Hazard. Um, But anyways, they, like, clattered together and... um, Williams was immediately booked for with a yellow card, but the referee um, at the time like waved the Chelsea medical staff onto the field because Mr. Hazard was he was down. Um, so the physio John Fern went out, and Eva Canero hot after his heels went out to address the medical issues. Um, but when they left, you know where the coaches were seated to go out onto the field. Jose Mourinho was heard to be yelling in Portuguese, either son of a whore or daughter of a whore, 
um, because he was so upset that essentially uh, a player was getting medical attention, which meant that Chelsea at that time, they were already um, down, um, down a person because of uh, another penalty slash foul. So they would be like down two people in this match. Um, and so things got really uncomfortable at Chelsea for the doctor uh, she she left shortly thereafter and then sued for being um, constructive dismissal. Yeah, constructive right. dismissal, which means that she wasn't fired, but she felt that because things had gotten so bad there that she was all but fired. So she left on her own, um, and also for harassment uh, against uh, Jose Mourinho and and the club. And this has been playing out in sort of the English media over the last several months. The trial was about to be underway. She was about to give her testimony um, in her in her civil suit. Um, was it Tuesday or Wednesday of this week? Mm-hmm. But they came to a deal basically at the last minute to avoid having her testify. We don't know the terms of the deal. They are confidential. Um, Basically, uh, you know, statements were issued by both sides, like, we really appreciated Eva Canero's service, and uh, she did great things for the team. You know, the usual standard stuff after the two parties have signed a confidential settlement agreement. Um, But for me, this case, aside from the fact that Eva Canero was one of very few women who are on medical staffs at um, really high-level football teams, is the idea that um, soccer hasn't really like dealt with the issue of concussion in the way that you know football and basketball and hockey have, and you know we can argue about whether or not the ways that football, hockey, and um, basketball have dealt with them in, in good ways, but at least there's a protocol in place, and hopefully there are you know doctors who are not attached to any particular teams with any particular agendas who, you know, are diagnosing and treating athletes who suffer concussions during games. In soccer, it seems like it's a really big deal. And, um, you know, if anyone's really interested in this topic, I'm sure you can just Google Tyler Twielman, who ended his uh, U.S. professional career because of concussions. Um, You know, there's a real lack of awareness in how to deal with concussions and player injuries because of the limited number of substitutions a team can make Mm -hmm. during the course of a match. And, um, you know, there might be a need to revisit how to deal with this stuff so that people like Jose Mourinho can't be upset that one of his players who was down on the ground was getting medical help. Um, So that's, I mean, it's been a pretty long-standing saga. I mean, most, yes, there were the the Eva Canero doctor issues, but it really was wrapped up in how bad Chelsea was this past season. They were defending champions coming into this year, and... They, like, basically finished mid-table, and Jose Mourinho got sacked, as they like to say. Um, And so, I mean, there was a lot going on at the Chelsea Football Club. Um, This was one of the things, but I didn't know if you had any particular... um, no, other than, you know, a part of me wonders, so one of the demands that um, Eva Canero made, um, at least initially, whether it was, it does not appear that it was part of the ultimate settlement, was that she wanted a personal apology from Jose Mourinho for calling her a daughter of a whore, which he insists he did not say. Um, and as part of the um, statement released by the Chelsea club, um, they just said that, you know, he really 
Mourinho really appreciated her service to the team, but did not actually apologize for what he had done. Maybe he did in private. Who knows? Um, but um, it is interesting to me that the settlement seemed to come kind of only after he left the team. Well, he was released from the team. So <laughs> part of me wonders if um, Chelsea was a little more interested in reaching a settlement now they didn't have to deal with him maybe being upset about it. Also, he was recently hired to uh, manage <laughs> my Red Devils, Manchester United. Um, so perhaps he was feeling more um, in a spirit to settle just to get this um, kind of over with and not have a cloud hanging over his head once he got his started his new job. That's um, fair. I kind of have a more cynical view on it, <laughs> which is that she was about to you know, give her testimony, right. which could have been very damaging to the club. I can just imagine as, you know, one of the only female staff members on the probably all male training staff around football players and, you know, coaches that it's probably a pretty rival environment. And, um, so they probably didn't want a lot of what like locker room secrets or behavior to get out. I mean, that's kind of how, at least when I read the fact that they came to a settlement, Right the before, timing, yeah. yes. Uh, I think that's that is probably quite right. I presume that they were not um, acting more appropriately just because there was a woman in the room. Yeah, but I mean, it's true that like you would probably want if you were a Jose Mourinho, you'd want to clear your slate before you started off your new gig. And you know, Chelsea wants to move on from this when um, their outsized personality manager is no longer with them, right? Yes. And, you know, it would be fascinating to see what she ultimately settled for. Cause apparently she rejected a settlement of 1.2 million pounds, which, um, I can't do the math in my head, but that's over 2 million us dollars. Maybe uh, almost, I think it's like probably it's close. It's like yeah. 1.8 or 1.9 million us dollars. Um, but she just wanted a damn apology from Jose <laughs> and he would not give it to her. So, um, you know, it's probably best for everybody that this has been settled and they can all move on. Um, but is, is she working for another team I don't now? think that she I is. didn't look like, none of the, at least the news reports I saw, talked about what she's kind of doing now. Apparently, um, Chelsea is insisting, or had insisted, that part of the reason they demoted her um, was because she was working too hard to kind of uh, elevate her own profile and become sort of yes. a celebrity doctor to the footballers. Um, as opposed to, I guess, concentrating on her duties with the team. Yeah, that they that she essentially was out there like signing autographs and becoming a celebrity figure herself. But um, you know, people will defenses will stick stuff out there that whether it's true or not or right or not. But that's just what you know. That's what you normally do. That's how you react when you're trying to defend your actions. Which kind of leads us into. For very, very briefly, like the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard story. I mean, there's not a lot for us to say about it because I think whatever is going to happen is going to play out. But um, Amber Heard filed for divorce from Johnny Depp recently and in the process of doing so filed for a temporary restraining order um, alleging that uh, Johnny Depp was physically abusive towards her through a cell phone interface. And I don't know if he actually also hit her some other time. I know he hit a wall, apparently. Right. During and, an argument. Um, allegations have since come out that he had been abusive throughout their relationship. Mm -hmm. But the, um, the allegations kind of underlying the application for the temporary restraining order were him throwing the cell phone in her face um, and leaving a 
allegedly uh, leaving a significant bruise under her eye, which uh, pictures have been in People magazine and were apparently presented to the court on this. The court did issue the TRO, um, and she, I guess, is able to live in their um, L.A. home while all of this gets um, sorted out. But uh, I think sort of the divorce aspect is a little, at this point, that's kind of working out however it's going to work out. Mm -hmm. And in California, um, you're it's a community property state. So sort of whatever the community property is, is limited to things that were earned during the term of the marriage. They were only married for about two years. Um, so I'm not sure how many assets or what there is to kind of split up. They don't have any kids together. So mm -hmm. theoretically the divorce should not be terribly complicated. Obviously these abuse allegations are complicating things. Further complicating things is that while Johnny Depp has kept his mouth shut, his friends certainly have not. Um, in particular, comedian Doug Stanhope um, put a uh, or drafted a column for um, the rap in which he said, you know, Amber Heard is a manipulative monster who is just blackmailing Johnny and um, that, you know, he knows this because he spent a lot of time with them. Why he, I mean, he basically said, like, I never stood up during the term of their marriage. Um, I keep saying term of their marriage like it's a term of a contract, <laughs> being very lawyery today. Um he didn't do anything about it at the time for reasons that he left somewhat unexplained, but that, you know, now that she's coming out and saying that Johnny Depp beat her, he feels like he has to stick up for his friend. Um, Amber Heard responded by suing him for defamation, um, which that is a very challenging crime to prove, um, or not crime, but uh, challenging allegation to prove because it's a civil issue. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, his column, I read... I guess editorial, I'm not really sure what you would call it, opinion piece, um, was pretty inflammatory, um, particularly if it's untrue. And it does, uh, to me, it raised the question, you know, it seems really interesting that you let your friend be abused by his wife for years and now all of a sudden you're going to stand up and make these nasty public statements about her. <laughs> Maybe if you'd stepped in a little earlier on, we wouldn't be at this place, but I suppose that's not really his responsibility um, but the, the column, which you can read if you, well, I wouldn't advise it. It's pretty obnoxious and awful, um, uh, is now the subject of litigation. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right. The divorce will work itself out the way that it works itself out in California and they'll divide assets and whether or not she gets spousal support, which she's seeking is, you know, it'll be left up to, to the court. Um, but it is interesting that, um, there are people who are coming not out of the woodwork necessarily, but making bold public statements in support of either party. And, and I, I don't know. And I do feel like this is, I'm just being curmudgeonly like get off my lawn sort of thing. But the fact that people feel the need to say these things to like be very public, like Vanessa Paradis has come out and said that, you know, this is certainly these allegations are outrageous and she's never known uh, Johnny Depp to be like this in the many years that they were together, that he was loving and kind and sensitive and Benicio Del Toro. Of course, Toro. then he dumped her for Amber <laughs> Heard, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Benicio Del Toro similarly coming out and saying that um, sort of seeming to back Doug Stanhope's statements about her being manipulative, right? Right, but then he's like, but I don't have any specifics. Yeah. Well, if you don't have specifics, shut the hell up. Yeah, that's... and that's really, like, well, that's really my curmudgeonly get-off-my-lawn <laughs> point, which is, why do you have to say anything? Why does anybody right. have to say anything? I mean, this is a very private matter between two people. Um, 
you know, and granted, yes, they're celebrity and our celebrity culture is what it is. And that's actually why you and I are sitting here talking, but it's just like, dude, if you don't know, just shut the hell up. (laughs) Yeah. It seems really unproductive and unhelpful. And, you know, frankly, if you, I guess this is a public service announcement. Like if you feel like your friend is in an abusive relationship physically or emotionally, do something about it. Don't wait for them to allegedly beat up their partner and then come out and be like, well, she's a monster. This is not, not helpful. Or he's a monster. Or he's, yes. yes. <laughs> I was using the appropriate pronouns for this particular um, incident, but it can certainly um, it be goes, reversed. Yes, it goes both ways. And I guess on our public service announcement, we yeah. will end for today. Um, stay tuned or come back for our next one. I don't know what we're going to talk about, but you know, it'll be the same mix of athletes, celebrities, and the law. Thanks. Thank you.